welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. This was the first day in Albuquerque that we had uh, a great deal of snow. The north and the mountains, they've been getting more of it. But we had some snow in Albuquerque, and it's nice and sunny, but it's cold, and the city was shut down for a couple hours this morning. Yeah. But it's not snowing in Tuscaloosa, is it? I'm just guessing here. No, it's going to be 75, and it's humid. <laughs> yeah, I think we might be getting up above freezing for a little piece of time around noon, but no, yeah, we're not going to 75 today. <laughs> today, we, we are talking about the time that Richard Walwain violated the sumptuary laws in London in 1565. What we're really doing is talking about the sumptuary laws in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, but we decided we needed to like have a crime to focus on. And so that's ours, Richard Walwain. In London in late January of 1565, Richard Walwain was arrested and imprisoned for wearing trunk hose, uh, padded trunk hose. That would be um, a, a pair of like short trousers. They're puffed out from the waist and then they come in at the thigh. And you will have seen them in pictures of, you know, drawings and paintings of Elizabethan men. And he wasn't supposed to wear them because he was a servant. And so he was not allowed to, by law, wear that garment because it was reserved for men of a higher class than he belonged to. Walwain was detained until he could prove that he actually owned some hose, hose means breeches in this particular parlance, that he had some hose that were, as the court put it, of a decent and lawful fashion. So the padded hose were not decent and lawful unless you were of a higher status, in which case they were decent and lawful. Well, that makes lots of sense, doesn't it? We would never make laws like that. That sounds so silly, doesn't it, Michelle? <laughs> Why would we regulate what kinds of things people wore? That would be just dumb, dumb, dumb. Okay, context, you're gonna have context. The Elizabethan sumptuary laws are infamous, but we wanna put them in the larger, this context of a, a larger pattern of societies regulating the actions of their citizens. Uh, that is in what they buy, what they consume, uh, how they present themselves. So these laws were meant to keep society stable by regulating what everybody was eating and wearing and buying. Sometimes by prohibiting what people could eat and wear and buy. Sometimes by, requ by requiring what they were supposed to eat and wear and buy. Either way. We have evidence of sumptuary laws that go back to uh, the 7th century BCE in Greece and in Rome. In Rome, there were laws prohibiting overly high expenditures on dyes and silks. And sumptuary laws, as like early as the 12th century, uh, were regulating what sex workers wore. In this case, it would be uh, things that the ornaments they were supposed to wear in order to show that, that, that they were prostitutes and so that you could know that. Uh, they were also, throughout the Middle Ages, often sex workers were allowed to wear clothes that regular women were not allowed to wear, like lower décolletage and things like that, so that you could, again, an emblem of their profession. Sumptuary laws could be meant to protect trade 
uh, as with the um, Roman regulations on dyes and silks or the English laws that started with Edward III regulating the import of textiles. It was an attempt to protect the English wool trade. And the medieval sumptuary laws were sometimes presented as pointed toward uh, civic morality. Regulating excess luxury could be connected to the regulation of gluttony and sloth, for instance, but in large part, laws concerning what people were allowed to wear had to do with keeping the lines between social classes clear. And they could also be used to delineate certain sections of the populace. For instance, throughout the Middle Ages from 1215 on, uh, Jews in various countries were caused to wear badges of certain sorts. They were different from place to place, but that's a sumptuary law. In England, the Tudors would institute laws and call for enforcement of them in order to show, and this is a quote from uh, one of the statutes, a difference of estates known by that their apparel after the commendable custom in times past. That clear that statute clearly calls not just for making the estates and classes clearly separate, but associates this with a with a commendable past. And it's not. It's not surprising then that sumptuary laws are run most rampant when times are uneasy in the Elizabethan era, which was concerned both with quelling religious upheaval and establishing a uh, safe position within the European realm, was strongly concerned with the behavior of its citizens, both in their secular laws and uh, their religious lives. Richard Walwain had fallen into this secular bad behavior by wearing puffed out balloon pants, padded hose, and breeches. So it would be possible for a town to make money off the sumptuary laws too. In Florentine, uh, Italy, a law in 1415 restricted what women could wear, but if you paid a fine of 50 florins a year, you could wear your luxurious stuff. <laughs> so what is that regulating? <laughs> it's like your class is whatever you can, you know, you can, aha, you could pay, okay. Or not, maybe you were just of the higher class. Who would know? Who would know? That particular, that particular regulation erases the social context and simply goes for the big bucks. You could throughout Europe be in fined, prisoned, and sometimes put to death for violating the sumptuary laws. And policing of gender presentation could also be regulated by sumptuary laws, not just class. In the Elizabethan church court records, there are many, many, many instances of men or women hauled before the church court for wearing the clothing that was assigned to the other gender. The exception, of course, in the Elizabethan era was the theater because women were not allowed on the stage. And so men took the women's roles. And so there's your nice little loophole. But in 1642, the Puritans would shut down the theaters, thereby shutting down the loophole. But we'd like to put all of this into further context, because often when we think about sumptuary laws, we automatically think about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Fair enough, but sumptuary laws didn't stop in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance, not surprisingly. In the American colonies, the Massachusetts Bay Colony prohibited fancy clothes for people who weren't rich. <laughs> you had to make, oh, I forget how many, like, you had to be worth something like 200 pounds, you know. And if you were, then you could wear the fancy things with silver and little frills of ruffles and God knows what all. And that lasted until 1634. 
1746, the Scots were prohibited from wearing tartan and kilts. That's a sumptuary law. You may not wear the clothes of your people. That's not uncommon. That shows up other places. For America, laws against cross-dressing started by 1845, um, and that was presented as a moral issue. Cross-dressing arrest surged in the 40s and through the 60s until the Stonewall riots of 1969, which started when started when New York police raided the Stonewall, a gay bar, which they were trying to shut down. Uh, they arrested the bar's employees and they targeted drag queens and kings and transgender people. And one of the trans cross-dressing lesbians was getting beat up by the police and the crowd started throwing things at the police led by uh, two transgender women of color. And that riot went on till 4 a.m. The bar opened again that night and... Uh, activists showed up and that that marked a radicalization of the LGBTQ movement, which had been going on for decades before, but that was a kind of change in, in tactics. And the police were the police were targeting both cross-dressing people and transgender people. There was no distinction that they were making. So it's not surprising that cross-dressing and drag have become once again a major issue for the pieces of American society who wish to regulate gender. And in that Elizabethan sense, go back to a commendable past, which is, of course, as usual, being imagined. The commendable past, whenever anybody says anything that we're going back to the commendable past, it was never there. These, <laughs> I don't know. Can you think of an instance, Michelle, when there actually was a commendable past that people try to get back to? It's not there. It's not there. It's always imaginary. I think so. Yeah. Away it was in the good old days. Yeah, they weren't there. Um, these times are uneasy. And so there's, there's a really strong push in several states to make drag shows illegal, regulating, you know, the, that Elizabethan loophole. For America, prohibition is also, that was a sumptuary law. No drinking alcohol for you. <laughs> and that language has been being used in movement to decriminalize marijuana in Washington state. The laws against cannabis were characterized as repugnant sumptuary laws. I didn't actually know that before I did this research that I, I thought about this most, the sumptuary laws as mostly clothing, but there was, it was all kinds of conspicu conspicuous consumption. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of conspicuous consumption or of making people behave in a certain way. Yes. Laws that don't actually have to do with don't steal from people or kill them or just even go by and whack them on the head. You know, laws that aren't about hurting other people, laws that are about behaving in a certain way that the society has decided that it approves of at the moment. You could be there then and you'd be fine, but you're here now, you're going to jail. Yeah. The regulation that under the Nazis that Jews wear yellow stars, that's a sumptuary law prescribing that people must wear a certain thing in order to show who they are. Those medieval laws about Jews having to wear identification badges had gone by the by and the Nazis brought it all up again. Uh, and that went on into the concentration camps, the concentration camp systems system to include pink triangles for homosexuals, purple ones for Jehovah's Witnesses, on and on and on. So that's a glancing, that's a glancing look at a very large history of regulations on uh, human behavior that's not actually hurting anybody else, but essentially 
people not minding their own business. Anyway, so that was a glancing look at it. Uh, but um, we returned. Richard Walwain wore some pants he didn't, as a servant, deserve to wear. And he got off easy. Yay. And Michelle, handing it to you now, but I know we're going to have conversation. I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but as I was doing the reading about this, I discovered that sumptuary laws have only gotten some real serious scholarly attention in the last couple decades. Like it's really a, it's it's really a twenty first century phenomena because fashion is associated now with women, and so the assumption was that it's just trivial nonsense because fashion is now considered to be trivial feminine nonsense. One of the books I was reading talked a lot about the transition between that fashion by and large in the Middle Ages is about men's fashion. Women are spending money on their clothing, but not as much as the men. That it's it's about kings and lords. Their wives need to look good because it reflects on them, but by and large, it's a competition among men. And that holds tight until the 18th century. You have an 18th century something called the Great Masculine Renunciation, where men's clothing transitions over to being that idea of it's not going to be gaudy. It's going to be well-made, but it's about elegance, not opulence. Okay. So in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, it was more dangerous when men wore clothes above their station because they were the ones who actually were holding power. And so women, yes. you know, unless they were prostitutes, in which case they had, you had to be able to tell who they were, I guess, you know, so, okay. Yes, that is the argument that that scholar was making is that you do, of course, have laws that target what women are wearing in the Middle Ages, but the really disruptive stuff is about what men are wearing. So, yeah, and especially so like Richard Walway, a servant who's wearing things. Yes, one of the things I was reading was also about how, with a problem, it's not just that you can't tell who's who and where they belong on your little, you know, hierarchy scale. It's that servants and men of lower classes, they start, they, if they can wear these fancy things, they spend too much money on them oh, and yes. they just like ruin their lives and like entire inheritances kind of like disappear going up in smoke with padded trousers, I guess. Yeah. 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 And there's, there's, there's a whole thing in the 16th century, you know, with Elizabethan clothing, where men really are wearing cod pieces that that are in fact questionable, you know, by by any kind of standards. When they were adapting Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, they had to change how they were dressing the men because they were afraid they were going to scandalize 21st century watchers with historically accurate cod pieces. Which twenty? What? 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 I mean, what? We're going to get scandalized by cod pieces? Yeah, they were afraid that they were afraid that their show would get that nothing would get talked about with the show except oh, the, cod the cod pieces if they didn't uh, because the twenty twenty first century viewers would not be aware that that was actually right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so they were afraid that there would be no discussion about the show except the cod pieces. Right. Which then the audience would assume they had made up in order yes. to be, I don't know. 
Game of Thronesy. Or something. Yeah, Game of Thronesy. <laughs> so they they much to the disgust of the author, toned him down. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the cod pieces were something else. I think really the pad, those padded, those padded trousers, I don't see the point of them, quite frankly. And I do enjoy fashion myself, you know, from afar. I don't wear it, but I like to look at it. And really, I mean, what is that about? You know, they could get two feet across. So <laughs> later on, later on, women would have, women would have these hoops that, instead of being round, were kind of oval, and they would go out so far that you couldn't get through the door, you know, except sideways. Kind of like that. Like, what? But that's all about exaggerate. That kind of exaggeration is always so, so noticeable and big. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking about what you're allowed to wear now that you're not actually teaching and you have to like go be social and stuff. It's like that. You didn't, you know, sequins when you're trying to explain the Middle Ages to your students do not go well. They are not a thing. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of sequins now because I'm allowed to do that. But yeah, I became real aware of the, you know, now unspoken but very much enforced uniforms for different professions. Academics dress in a particular way. This almost kind of um, ostentatious dowdiness. Yes, that's the, that's a good word for it. No. Ostentatious dowdiness. I like that as a concept, really. I could wear sequins, but I don't. But I'm not. Gonna. I could wear padded trousers, but no, not doing it. Yeah, there. And we we, we were talking about that. There's a we're talking today specifically specifically about sumptuary laws, but things don't have to be codified in order to be very very powerful. You can get killed for wearing clothes that uh, offend people because they don't think you're wearing, they, they think you should be wearing clothes that look like they belong to another gender than you seem to be. I mean, you can get killed for that. It's not. <laughs> is, it, is it illegal for you to be wearing these clothes? Not at the moment. Uh, I don't think any place, except, of course, the drag queen shows for the libraries, but that might not be a law, but it's a pretty strong kind of prohibition, a societal prohibition. You have to be very courageous and being very much true to yourself to wear what you know you should be wearing, what your real clothes, no matter what the society says. It was very interesting reading the scholarship to see that there are two strands that go all through these centuries, as far back as we can trace this. One Fashion is trivial. It's not very important. Nobody should pay attention to it. And two, people lose their minds if you're wearing something that they perceive that you're not supposed to. So it is both extremely trivial and extremely important. So I, I believe you and I are in agreement. I'm just guessing here. Uh, we haven't said so, but I'm thinking we are in agreement. True Crime and Evil says that fashion is important and sometimes people die for it. Right. Fair enough. Yes. I have a couple of historical thingies to share with you. Okay. So there is a 14th century poet and diplomat from Florence. His name is Franco Sacchetti. Uh -huh. He um, was specifically excluded from the general banishment of the Sacchetti from Florence after the Campini revolt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I believe we talked about. Did we not? Did we? If we... not, we should put it on the list. Okay. I don't actually know if we talked about it. We may have mentioned it because it's a 
Peasants Revolt. So we may have mentioned it when we were talking about the Peasants Revolt. Did. Okay. So we, okay. It was Campini Revolt on the list. People behaving badly in Italy. Oh, yay. So we can circle back to that and look at it in, in particular. He is, um, he was excluded because of his personal merits. He was called, um, because he was a very good guy, basically. <laughs> he was allowed to stay in Florence. He was mostly a diplomat. He was assigned to be the ambassador to Genoa for a while. Anywho, he has a set of works called the Novelli that are his best known works. They're a set of short stories or, or vignettes. Short story implies a genre that they're not. Yeah. But they're short narratives. They don't have a framing narrative like the Decameron. But in one in uh, vignette uh, 137, he has a little story about why it's hard to enforce the sumptuary laws. Oh, do share. Do share. I don't know this. That this is delightful. Um, they have sent out what the enforcer is coming back and explaining why he had trouble. My lords, I have studied all my life to learn law, and now when I thought I knew something, I find I know nothing. For when seeking those ornaments which are forbidden to your women according to the orders that you gave me, such arguments as they brought forward in their defense I never before found in any law. And from among them I should like to mention to you a few. There came a woman with the long peak of her hood fringed and twisted round her head. And I said, tell me your name, because your peak is fringed. The good woman <laughs> took down the peak, which was fastened to the hood with a pin, and holding it in her hand, she said, it's only a wreath. <laughs> and I walked along a little farther, and I met a woman with many buttons at the front of her dress. And I said, you cannot wear those buttons. And she said, yes, I can. They're not buttons, they're beads. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, look. There's no buttonholes. <laughs> they're just beads. <laughs> so he goes on and he comes across another who's wearing, wearing ermine. And he's wondering to himself, what is she going to have to say? I'm kind of, kind of quoting, kind of paraphrasing. You got it. You are wearing ermine, he said. And is about to write down her name. But the woman said, do not write down my name. This is not ermine. He says, well, what is it then? And she comes out with a name that is a made-up name <laughs> of an animal that translates to suckling, but it's like little, little something or other. Um, and he says, well, what is that? And she says, an animal. <laughs> so, you know, he's out there and he's getting gold, you know, but that's not, that's not a button. That's not the fur you think it is. Mm -hmm. And the lawyer comes back and tells them, I would have you know that Romans who conquered the whole world could avail nothing against their women. So it's it's partially a story about how this is basically un you know, the way it was written, it was unenforceable. But it's, you know, also partially a story about, you know, that the trope about you can't tell women what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot of anxiety about that right. in the Middle Ages. Right, right. The there's a book called um, Juris and Jurisprudence in Medieval Italy by uh, Oswald Cavallar and Julius Kushner that um, came out from the University of Toronto Press in 2020 that connects resistance to the sumptuary laws in the 14th and 15th century. 14th, 15th century to a backlash against university trained lawyers in general, and I thought oh, that was interesting. Really, how does yeah. that? Work? He, they say that 
government is using university trained lawyers to try to tighten up loopholes to make sure that all the taxes that you're owed get paid to try to start enforcing some laws. And they see the they see both the existence of the sumptuary laws and the backlash to them as part of that greater context of the government trying to cent- centralize their authority using university trained lawyers and people saying no. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not used to that and we're not doing that. You don't get to tell me what to do. <laughs> so that was very interesting, but also I was reminded in a different book that in Thomas More's Utopia from 1515, he specifically addresses clothing. You know, I I know that book and I had not remembered that. I had I had forgotten that too, so I was glad to be reminded of it. We are told that throughout the island, so here we here I am quoting, they wear the same sort of clothes without any other distinction except and this is really interesting, except what is necessary to distinguish the two sexes and the married and unmarried. So Moore starts with this idea that everybody's going to have the same clothes, except except for the stuff we really need, which is to tell a difference between who's married and not married and to tell the difference between men and women. We have to, we have to know these things. Yeah, that's really important stuff. Oh, why? The, <laughs> the fashion never alters and it is neither disagreeable nor uneasy. So it is suited to the climate. And calculated both for their summers and winters. And then he actually has a little bit more um, detail about this later on. While they are at labor, they are clothed with leather and skins carelessly cut about them. Um, When they appear in public, they have an upper garment. But everything is of one color, the natural color of the wool. And they, they use linen, but again, it's the natural color of it. And they only have a few things. While it will in other places, four or five upper garments of wool and cloth of different colors and as many vests of skill, silk will scarcely serve one man, and those who are nicer think ten too few. Every man there is content with one. So he imagines an ideal society in which people have one outfit and it's all the same color, except for some ways in which you still have a distinction of sex and between who is married and unmarried. It's, it's such an interesting, I mean, he's more utopia is interesting in general, but this vision of the role of clothing in utopia is, is quite fascinating. Well, I, I, I'm really struck by the ways in which this utopia where no one, you know, people, it sounds like people can wear whatever they want, except that they have to show that they're married or unmarried or that they're male or female. It's actually incredibly prescriptive because what yes. what's going on is that the society is all better because nobody is wearing the fancy stuff. You just take the fancy stuff out of the equation and then you don't have people worried about what their status is because, it, you know, it just doesn't matter. Uh, it's not something that you're showing. But that's still prescriptive. Oh, yes. It's undyed linen. It's undyed wool. And it's boring as hell. I mean, you know, where are my fancy little things, my, my little buttons and whatnot? It doesn't make any sense. I remember when I was very young, not understanding, like, why does it matter? I mean, I totally get it that you're not supposed to run around naked 
And I totally get it that, you know, different societies, you have different things you're supposed to cover up. Okay, fine. But I never could understand why there were rules. I had no idea then that there were laws, but why there were rules about what you were supposed to wear. It made no sense to me. I do get why you might, as England, try to regulate the wool trade. Okay. That actually makes more sense to me you know, than making people wear little signs to show what faith they are or, you know, making people wear something that makes everybody comfortable with what sex they're portraying. I mean, I don't understand it. I never have. I think it's okay with me that I don't understand it. I think I do not want to know. I do think I do not want to know that about my fellow humans, why it is so important to them that they cannot mind their business about what other people are wearing. But but I don't think it's an accident that the the times and the places that are the, as they're transitioning from the Middle Ages to the early modern period, that's where we see the bump of, so 14th century Italy, 16th century England, those are those transition moments, there's those moments of, of crisis and that's where we see an attempt to hold everything together by at least we can just tell people what to wear. Yeah. And you hold everything together because you are trying to keep a hold of the imagined um, wonderful past. Exactly. When this exactly. was not an issue, you know, and you could tell who everybody was and you could be comfortable and I don't know, whatever the hell else is going on. So perhaps I should not have been surprised, but I was to discover a, a pair of novels from the early 20th century from 1907 and 1911 by a fascinating human who I probably would not have liked in real life, but he's quite fascinating as a historical person to read about. His name was Robert Hugh Benson. I do and not know this person. He was a Catholic priest and also a writer. Mm -hmm. And he actually was the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which means he was an Anglican to start out with. And after his father's death, he went on a, he was having a crisis of faith. He went on a tour through Europe and came back a Catholic and it created headlines. Of course <laughs> it would, right? The, the son of the, son of the Archbishop, of Archbishop of Canterbury converts to Catholicism. It was a big hairy deal. Where had he been hanging out? Rome, France, Spain? Where was he? He was all over Europe. He was going on his grand tour slash morning, morning tour. And he is a zealot the way that a convert is a zealot. Mm. And these two, he has lots of other books too, but these two, the first one is, a, the way he presents it, a dystopia, and the second one is a utopia. The first one is called Lord of the World, and it envisions this horrific 20th century future in which there is hardly any religion, and they're being persecuted, and the, the commies have taken over. Oh, wait, didn't I see somebody saying that over on Twitter yesterday? I... <laughs> and then he writes The Dawn of All, where he says in his little intro, some of, some of you were depressed by the past book, so now I'm going to write you a utopia. And he writes, a, he writes what he calls a utopia, in which, in, which, in this version of the, the 1973... The Catholics have taken over. They've reinstituted sumptuary laws, which is why I found it. <laughs> and basically they have recreated 
their understanding of the Middle Ages? So Moore's utopia doesn't need sumptuary laws because nobody's wearing anything fancy. It's kind of like the place where people have chosen to do it. An embodied sumptuary law. Uh, This utopia also sumptuary law. The idea that utopia contains sumptuary laws, it just uh, astounds me, really. I was fascinated to find this book. So is it is it one of those ones that I kind of don't want to go read it? Should I? Is it like the kind I of- wouldn't. I don't recommend it. The um the description of it here in a uh, it's a compilation of describing science fiction, early science fiction. What they say is a description of a religious ideal society set in the near future. Most readers, and then there's a sentence that describes what he thinks he's doing. Most readers, however, have found the dawn of all more depressing, discouraging, and outrageous than the first book. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to read a utopia that sounds like I would have to go to jail personally, or or you for your sequence. You, you, that would be sad. Or uh, my daughter, for sure. You know, like, I don't want to do these things. It's a, it's a real, I, it's interesting to me because A, I didn't really know that Catholic priests were writing science fiction in 1911. So that was really interesting. But I, I really am interested in the fact that part of this ideal society that he sees is it's really a recreation of what he thinks the Middle Ages was like. He, he perceives the Middle Ages as this height of Catholic power and he wants to recreate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. part of that is reinstituting the sumptuary laws, reinstituting clerical privilege. Now, when he reinstitutes the sumptuary law in, in his utopia, which ones are these? How does he put this together? I, I don't know. I you would have to read it. <laughs> I got three pages into it and decided I could not possibly read this book. For for your own mental health, you went away from there. <laughs> I did. What I did read of his, though, he wrote a mystery play. Oh, did he? Am I going to be upset about this, too? No, that was okay. It's a nativity play that he's clearly aware of every man because he mentions every man in the um author's notes of it but it's a entirely reasonable nativity play oh, okay but again i think that's part of him being interested in the medieval as an idealized catholic past right because right. now it needs plays like it did before like it had before um i will leave you with one other kind of nice thing M- margaret Fraser, who is uh, or was was the best hands down historical novels working in the middle ages it's not even close has a book about an embroiderer called the semster's tale and it was the closest thing i could find to historical fiction that used the sumptuary laws as a plot device which i really expected to find but did not yes here's another historical novel that needs to get written yeah but the semster's tale at least has an embroiderer as the main character okay from 2006 the sem it's called semster because we get we get told in the author's note that the word seamstress is not current to the middle ages true that this is very true so that that is what that is what i have that is what i have this was an absolute i really i really was bowled over by how big this topic is 
Yes. So it's the kind of topic that you could spend like several um, episodes on, but we're spending one short one. Richard Huawei and Richard Huawei, and he got arrested in London. <laughs> there was a guy, I got, well, here's a guy who did, it was sad. I'm like, and why was he, why, here you are, you're a servant in London, you know about the laws. I mean, there were, people would get like, they'd get taken and, and their, and their hose slashed and all the padding pulled out. I mean, you know, people, you know, you know, you're going to be in trouble. Why? You know, but. It just takes such fortitude. I will wear my padded damn pants. I'm going to wear them. I'd like to know how padded they were. Are these the two-foot padded pants or just, you know, foot and a half? I'd like to know that. I was fascinated by some of the reading about the social wandering of earrings in medieval Italy. What? 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 Tell me. They come in first to 14th century Italy as something only that the sex workers are wearing. And so they decide to make it a law that the sex workers have to wear the earrings to indicate that they're sex workers. But they're so cool that upper class men and women start wearing them. So now they have to change the laws that no, no, nobody except upper class men and women can wear these. And wait, 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 wait. And the prostitutes or do they? They're no longer allowed to. They have to give up their earrings. They have to give up the earrings. So earrings have this whole fascinating journey through the sumptuary laws as what they mean changes. Wow. And this is Italy specific. Yep. Italy specific. But that, that, of course, connected to me with Shakespeare, right? Because Shakespeare has that one little earring. And we know he does it because he is being he's being culturally pushy in some way but we don't know as much as we might like to know what specific meaning that has in the 1590s right could be could be several and of course that was still touchy enough that when i was certainly in high school and an undergraduate we were never ever i was in graduate school before i saw the painting of shakespeare with his earring because it was still considered to be possibly scandalous that he had the one little earring. We were never shown. That was never the painting of him that we were shown. I like the one with the earring myself. Yeah. In fact, the first time I saw it, I'm like, what? <laughs> and no Shakespeare had an earring? Yeah, because nobody wanted us to know that the bard of Avon had an earring. But the, you know, the, the, the sumptuary laws with the earrings in Italy are really interesting because it really kind of points to how hard it is to make these things stick. They've, they've got the laws. Only the sex workers can wear the earrings until the upper class people are like, well, yeah, but that's really hot. I want to wear those too. That looks really nice. And it's a good way to show off my jewels. Like everything about this is awesome. I want that and some padded hose. That's what I want. Well, they have to change the laws. A farthingale. I want a farthingale. Oh my gosh, this was so complicated. I thought this was a fairly straightforward topic that you had sumptuary laws and by and large people ignored them. Oh man, there's so much more going on. Very, very fascinating. I think one of the things that gives me a lot of hope about the humans is that they tend to ignore sumptuary laws. I think that's a good sign. I like for the humans to, you know, have some wherewithal. Yeah, this was this was an interesting, an interesting, interesting topic. 
Oh, oh, oh. Um, one of the things that also I wanted to mention is that the big rise in sumptuary laws in the Middle Ages, we, you know, we know it's tied to periods of unrest. Well, one of the big periods of unrest, as we've talked about, Black Death, because uh, when there were fewer workers, the wages went up. Doesn't that only make sense? And so more people could afford the things that they weren't supposed to be wearing. You know, it got harder to tell who people were. And of course, everything was kind of shaky and, you know, we're the nobility and the upper class and we really need to keep our privileges. So really, you guys should behave yourself. So we go back to the Black Death as usual. I think I read also that there are some technological advances happening in the late Middle Ages that, that bring down the price of clothing which also then puts clothing more at reach. So, you know, spinning wheels become more common. So it's it's faster to make cloth rather than have to do it with a drop spindle. Yeah, it's just a perfect, it's a perfect storm of, in fact, one of the things I was reading this this week for this was talking about how the change in inventions that are that's happening in the late Middle Ages, there's really only two time periods like it. The Industrial Revolution and then the 20th century computing technology that this the speed of innovation that is happening in the 14th and 15th centuries and the impact that it has on society is in the same category as those those two other groups which i believed but it was nice to have somebody else say it and when things change quickly it's an uneasy time uneasy times are not just times of war or times when you're trying to when you're trying to make people have the right religion uneasy times are also when things change really really quickly and you're born into you're born into a time when um your television set is like really really tiny inside of a giant a giant cabinet i remember this very clearly watching mickey mouse and then becomes smaller and bigger, and then now becomes like a big, lovely thing on your wall. It's just like a picture. And that's just the television. Not to, you know, we're carrying around the world in my hand on my iPhone. That's a lot of change. And so you know what? It's really important that people wear the right things so we can tell who they are and we can go back to the comfortable good times. That's the plan. That's the plan. Cool. That's going to work well. It's totally going to work, as we've seen throughout history. Yes, yes. That's, that's the lesson of history, that it always works to tell people what to wear. <laughs> and what to eat, too. They like to be told what to eat, uh, and they really like to be told what it is they should be imbibing so that they can change their moods. They love these things, and they always obey, and then you can have everything be okay. We can have Moore's Utopia which is not at all like going to hell, even though it might sound like that. It is just not. It is a good time when you're very, very happy because all you're wearing is brown stuff and ecru stuff on account of that's what color the sheep are. That's the deal. Now, that was fun. Do we have anything else, my dear, my dear? Nope. That is what I have other than just acknowledging that it was a humongous, humongous topic. Humongous topic and still going on. Fight against sumptuary laws. That's where it's at. This has been True Crime and Evil, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. Just, 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 just. Worrisomely. 
<laughs> unfortunately. We can be found on Spotify and Stitcher and all the places where the podcasts are hanging out. And uh, we can be reached at truecrimeandevil.com. True Crime and Evil is all one word. You can uh, leave comments, uh, which we'd love for you to, if there's any medieval crimes you think we should look at, let us know. We enjoy that. And you can reach us through there. And the show notes are there and transcripts are there and we're catching up. We had, we had, I know there was a COVID thing and then there was, I don't know, a year later. So we had, we've had quite a little time, but we're catching up. So stuff's over there and um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And the next time we meet, I actually remember to do this. We forgot last time. Ah, what are we doing next? Yeah. Next time we meet, we are going to 1169 in Leinster because we want to talk about the time that Dermot McMurkid invited the Normans over to Ireland because we personally, the two of us, consider that a crime. We're just saying. Oh, God. It's like he never met a Norman. What did he think the Normans were going to do? What do the Normans do? Like they're the Vikings that actually took over so much of the world. They're an invasive species. Yeah, we're, so we're going to go to Ireland next time. But that's us. That's all for us today. We were all over. Bye. Bye.